At the very edge of the sea, the surf bubbled and sucked at the sand. As the wavelet drew back, it flowed around the splintered bulk of a tree. The drifting wood's cargo of crabs and sand fleas waited for their moment and slid off cautiously, scuttling ashore ahead of the next wave. The rain banged into the beach, running in miniature canyons of crumbling sand on its way to the sea. The crabs surged across these like a homesteader's stampede, rushing to mark out territory on the endless virgin beach. They followed the salty tide line of weed and shells, scrambling over one another in their search for a space where a crab can proudly stand sideways and start a new life and eat the heady sand of freedom. A few of them investigated a grey, sodden, pointy hat that was tangled in seaweed, and then ran on to a more promising heap of soaked cloth, which offered even more interesting holes and crevices. One of them tried to climb into Ponder Stibbon's nose and was snorted out again. Ponder opened an eye. When he moved his head, the water filling his ears made a ringing noise. The history of the last few minutes was complicated. He could remember rushing along a tube of green water, if such a thing were possible, and there had been several periods where the air and the sea and Ponder himself had been very closely entwined. Now he felt as though someone had with great precision hit every part of his body with a hammer. Get off, will you? Ponder reached up and pulled another crab out of his ear and realised that he had lost his glasses. They were probably rolling at the bottom of the sea by now, frightening lobsters. So here he was, on an alien shore, and he'd be able to see everything really clearly, provided everything was meant to be a blur. Am I dead this time? It was the dean's voice from a little further away along the beach. No, you're still alive, sir, said Ponder. Damn, are you sure? There were other groans as bits of tidal debris turned out to be wizards mixed with seaweed. "'Are we all here?' said Ridcully, trying to get to his feet. "'I'm sure I'm not,' moaned the dean. "'I don't see Mrs. Whitlow,' said Ridcully. "'Or the bursar.' Ponder sat up. "'There's... oh dear. Well, well, there's the bursar.' Out at sea, a huge wave was building up. It towered higher and higher, and the bursar was on top of it. "'Bursar!' Ridcully screamed. The distant figure stood up on the seed and waved. "'He's standing up,' said Ridcully. "'Is he supposed to stand up on those things? "'He's not supposed to stand up, is he? "'I'm sure he shouldn't be standing up. "'You're not supposed to stand up, Bursar!' "'How the... that's not supposed to happen, is it?' The wave curled, but the Bursar seemed to be skimming down the side of it, skidding along the huge green wet wall like a man on one ski. Ridcully turned to the other wizards. He can't do that, can he? He's walking up and down on it. Can he do that? The wave's curling over and he's just sliding gently along the... Oh, no. The foaming crest curled over the speeding wizard. That's it, then, said Ridcully. Er, uh, no, said Ponder. The bursar reappeared further along the beach, expelled from the collapsing tube of water like an arrow from a bow. The wave crashed over behind him, striking the shore as if it had just offended it. The seed changed direction, cruised gently over the backwash, and crunched to a halt on the sand. The bursar stepped off. Hooray, he said. My feet are wet. What a nice forest. Time for tea. He picked up the seed and rammed it point first in the sand. Then he wandered away up the beach. Uh, how did he do that, said Ridcully. I mean, the man's crazier than a ferret. Damn good bursar, of course. 
Possibly the lack of mental balance means there's nothing to impede physical stability, said Ponder wearily. You think so? Not really, sir. I just said it for something to say. Ponder tried to massage some life back into his legs and started to count under his breath. Is there anything to eat here? said the chair of indefinite studies. Four, said Ponder. I beg your pardon? What? Oh, it was just some counting I was doing, sir. No, sir, there's probably fish and lobsters in the sea, but the land looks pretty bare to me. It did. Reddish sand stretched away through the greyish drizzle to bluish mountains. The only greenishness was the dean's face, and suddenly the shoots winding out of the bursa's surfing seed. Leaves unfolded in the rain. Tiny flowers opened with little plopping noises. Well, at least we'll have another boat, said the senior wrangler. I doubt it, sir, said Ponder. The god wasn't very good at breeding things. And indeed the swelling fruit was not looking very boat-shaped. You know, I still think it would help if we thought of all this as, as, as a valuable opportunity, said Ridcully. That's true, said the dean, sitting up. It's not many times in your life you get the chance to die of hunger on some bleak continent thousands of years before you're born. We should make the most of it. I meant that pitting ourselves against the elements will bring out the best in us and forge us into a go-getting and hard-hitting team, said Ridcully. This view got no takers. I'm sure there must be something to eat mumbled the chair of indefinite studies, looking around aimlessly. There usually is. After all, nothing is beyond men like us, said Ridcully. That's true, said Ponder. Oh, gods, yes, that's true. And at least a wizard can always make a decent fire. Ponder's eyes opened wide. He rose in one movement aimed at Ridcully, but was still airborne when the arch-chancellor tossed a small fireball at a heap of driftwood. By the time the glowing ball was halfway to the wood, Ponder had hit Ridcully in the back, so that both of them were sprawled on the wet sand when the world went whoop. When they looked up, the heap of driftwood was a blackened crater. Well, thank you, said the dean behind them. I feel lovely and dry now, and I never did like my eyebrows all that much. High Thalmic Field, sir, Ponder panted. I did say. Ridcully stared at his hands. I was going to light my pipe with one, he muttered. He held his hand away from him. It was only a number ten, he said. The dean stood up, brushing away some tufts of burnt beard. I'm not sure I believe what I just saw, he said, and pointed a finger at a nearby rock. No, sir, I don't think you... Most of the rock was lifted off the ground and landed a hundred yards away. The rest of it sizzled in a red-hot puddle. Can I have a go? said the senior wrangler. Sir, I really think... Oh, well done, senior wrangler, said the dean, as another rock fractured into fragments. Ye gods, you were right, Stibbons, said Ridcully. The magic field here is huge. Yes, sir, but I really don't think we should be using it, sir, Ponder shrieked. We're wizards, young man. Using magic is what wizarding is all about. No, sir, not using magic is what wizarding is all about. Ridcully hesitated. This is fossil magic, sir, said Ponder, speaking fast. It's what's being used to create this place. We could do untold damage if we're not careful. 
All right, all right, no one do anything for a moment, said Ridcully. Now, what are you talking about, Mr. Stibbons? I don't think the place is properly, well, finished, sir. I mean, there are no plants or animals, are there? Nonsense. I saw a camel a little while ago. Yes, sir, but that came with us. And there's seaweed and crabs on the beach, and they got washed up too. But where are the trees and bushes and grasses? Interesting, said Ridcully. Place is as bald as a baby's bottom. Still under construction, sir. The god did say it was being built. Unbelievable, really, said Ridcully. A whole continent being created out of nothing. Exactly, sir. Gazillions of thousands of magic pouring into the world. You've got it, sir. Whole mountains and, and, and cliffs and, and beaches where once there was nothing style of thing. That's right, sir. Bit of a miracle, you could say. I certainly would, sir. Unimaginably vast amounts of magic doing their stuff. Astonishing, sir. So I expect no one will miss a little bit, hmm? No, that's not how it works, sir. If we use it, it's like... like... Treading on ants, sir. This isn't like finding an old staff in a cupboard and using up the magic that's left. This is the real primal energy. Anything we do might well have an effect. The dean tapped him on the shoulder. Then here we are, young Stibbons, stuck on this forsaken shore. What do you suggest? We're thousands of years from home. Perhaps we should just sit and wait. That rinsewind fellow's bound to be along in a few millennia, hmm? Uh, Dane, said the senior wrangler. Yes? Are you standing behind Stibbons there, or are you sitting on this rock over here? The dean looked at himself sitting on the rock. Oh, blast, he muttered. Temporal discontinuity again. Again, said Ponder. We had a patch of it in room 5B once, said the senior wrangler. Ridiculous. You had to cough before you went in in case you were already there. Anyway, you shouldn't be surprised, young man. Enough magic distorts all physical la- The senior wrangler vanished, leaving only a pile of clothes. Oh, took a while to take hold, said Ridcully. I remember when... His voice suddenly rose in pitch. Ponder spun around and saw a small heap of clothing with a pointed hat on top of it. He raised the hat gingerly. A pink face under a mop of curls looked up at him. Bugger, squeaked Ridcully. How old am I, mister? Uh, you look about six, sir, said Ponder, his back twinged. The small, worried face crinkled up. Uh, I want my mum, the little nose sniffed. Was that me who just said that? Uh, yes. You can keep on top of it if you concentrate, the Arch-Chancellor squeaked. It resets the temporal... I want a sweetie! It resets the temporal gla... I want a sweetie! Oh... You wait till I get me home. I'll give me such a smack. It resets the body's clock. Where's Mr Poodle? It resets the body's clock. Wonder, wonder, Mr Poodle. Don't worry. I think I've got the hang of it. The wail behind Ponder made him turn round. There were more piles of clothing where the wizards had been. He pulled aside the dean's hat, just as a faint bloop suggested that Mustrum Ridcully had managed to regain full possession of his years again. That the dean, Stibbons? Could be, sir. Uh, some of them have gone, sir. Ridcully looked unflustered. Temporal gland acting up in the high field, he said. Probably decided that since it's thousands of years ago, they're not here. Don't worry, they'll come back when it works out. 
Ponda suddenly felt breathless. And we think this one's the lecturer in recent rooms. <laughs> of course, with all babies look the <laughs> same. There was another wail from under the senior wrangler's hat. Bit of a <laughs> kindergarten here, sir, Ponda wheezed. His back creaked when he tried to stand upright. Oh, they'll probably come back if they don't get fed, said Ridcully. It's you that'll be the problem, lad. I mean, sir. Ponda held his hands up in front of him. He could see the veins through the pale skin. He could nearly see the bones. Around him, the piles of clothing rose again as the wizards clambered back to their proper age. How old I look, he panted, like someone who shouldn't start reading a long book. A long sentence, said Ridcully cheerfully, holding him up. How old do you feel in yourself? I ought to feel about twenty-four, sir, Ponder groaned. I actually feel like a twenty-four-year-old who has been hit by eighty years travelling at high speed. Hold on to that thought. Your temporal gland knows how old you are. Ponder tried to concentrate, but it was hard. Part of him wanted to go to sleep. Part of him wanted to say, Ha! You call this a temporal disturbance? You should have seen the temporal disturbances we will have been used to be going to get in my day. A pressing part of him was threatening that if he didn't find a toilet, it would make its own arrangements. You've kept your hair, said the senior wrangler encouragingly. Ponder heard himself say, Remember old Cruddy Trusset? Now there was a wizard who had good hair. He tried to get a grip. He's still alive, isn't he? He wheezed. He's the same age as me. Oh, no. Now I'm remembering only yesterday as if it was seventy years ago. You can get over it, said Ridcully. You've got to make it clear you're not accepting it, you see. The important thing is not to panic. I am panicking, squeaked Ponder. I'm just doing it very slowly. Why have I got this horrible feeling that I'm eh, falling forward all the eh, time? Oh, that's just apprehensions of mortality, said Ridcully. Everyone gets that. And eh, now I think my memory's going. What makes you think that? Think what? Uh, uh, speak up, you, you uh, uh, young man. Something exploded somewhere behind Ponder's eyeballs and lifted him off the ground. For a moment he felt he had jumped into icy water. The blood flowed back into his hands. Well done, lad, said Ridcully. Your hair's going brown again, too. Ow! Ponder slumped to his knees. It was like wearing a lead suit. I never want to go through that again. Suicide's your best bet, then, said Ridcully. Is this going to happen again? Probably. At least once, anyway. Ponder got to his feet with a steely look in his eyes. Then let's find out whoever's building this place and ask them to send us home, he growled. They might not want to listen, said Ridcully. Deities can be touchy. Ponder shook his sleeves to leave his hands free. For a wizard, this was the equivalent to checking the functioning of a pump-action shotgun. Then we'll insist, he said. Really, Stibbons? <laughs> what about protection of the magical ecology? Ponder turned on him a look that would have opened a strong room. 
Ridcully was in his seventies and spry even for wizards, who tended to live well into their second century if they survived their first fifty years. Ponder wasn't sure how old he'd been, but he definitely thought he could hear a blade being sharpened. It was one thing to know you were on a journey, and quite, quite another to see your destination on the horizon. It can get stuffed, he said. It would be nice to say that this experience taught Ponder a valuable lesson, and that he was a lot more considerate towards old people afterwards, and this was true for about five minutes. Well thought out, Mr. Stibbons. I can see we'll make a wizard of you yet. Ah, the Dean's... Oh. The Dean's clothes billowed up, but did not, as it were, inflate to their old size. The hat, in particular, was big enough to rock on the Dean's ears, which were redder, and stuck out more than Ponder remembered. Ridcully raised the hat. Push off, Grandad, said the Dean. Ah, said the Arch-Chancellor. Thirteen years old, I'd say, which explains a lot. Well, Dean, help us with the others, will you? Why should I? The adolescent Dean cracked his knuckles. Ah, I'm young again and soon you'll be dead. I've got me whole life ahead of me. Firstly, you'll spend it here. And secondly, Dean, you think it's going to be jolly good fun being the Dean in a thirteen-year-old body, don't you? But within a minute or two, you'll start forgetting it all, you see? The old temporal gland can't allow you to remember being fourteen when you're not even thirteen yet. You follow me? You'd know this stuff, Dean, if you weren't forgetting. You'll have to go through it all over again, Dean. Uh, the brain has far less control over the body than the body does over the brain, and adolescence is not a good time. Nor is old age, for that matter, but at least the spots have cleared up. Some of the more troublesome glands have settled down, and you're allowed to take a nap in the afternoons and twinkle at young women. In any case, the Dean's body hadn't experienced too much old age yet, whereas every junior spot, ache and twinge was firmly embossed on the morphic memory. Once, it decided, was enough. The Dean expanded. Ponder noticed that his head in particular swelled up to fit his ears. The Dean rubbed his spot-free face. Five minutes wouldn't have been bad, he complained. What was that all about? Temporal uncertainty, said Ridcully. You've seen it before, didn't you realise? What were you thinking of? Sex. Oh, yes, of course. Silly of me, really. Ridcully looked along the deserted beach. Mr Stibbons thinks we can... He began, ye gods, there are people here. A young woman was walking towards them, swaying anyway. My word, said the dean. I suppose this isn't slacky by any chance. I thought they wore grass skirts, said Ridcully. What's she wearing, Stibbons? A sarong. Looks right enough to me, <laughs> said the dean. Certainly makes a man wish he was fifty years younger, said the chair of indefinite studies. Five minutes younger would do for me, said the dean. Incidentally, did any of you notice that rather clever inadvertent joke just then? Stibbons said it was a sarong, and I said, "'What's that she's carrying?' said Ridcully. "'No, listen, you see, I misheard him, in fact, and I... "'Looks like coconuts,' said Ponder, shading his eyes. "'This is a bit more like it,' said the senior wrangler, "'because actually I thought he said it's wrong, you see?' "'Certainly a coconut.' said Ridcully. I'm not complaining, of course, but aren't these sultry maids generally black-haired? Red doesn't seem very typical. So, I said, I suppose you get coconuts here, 
said the lecturer in recent rooms. They float, don't they? And listen, when Stibbons said, Sarong, I thought, Something familiar about her, Ridcully mused. Did you see that nut in the Museum of Quite Unusual Things, said the senior wrangler, called the Coco de Mare, and, he permitted himself, <laughs> very <laughs> curious shape, you know. You'll never guess who it used to put me in mind of. It can't be Mrs Whitlow, can it? said Ponder. As a matter of fact, I must admit that it... Well, I thought it was mildly amusing anyway, said the dean. It is Mrs Whitlow, said Ridcully. More of a nut, really, but... It dawned on the senior wrangler that the sky was a different colour on his personal planet. He turned round, looked, said, and fell gently to the sand. He don't quite know what's happened to Mr Librarian, said Mrs Whitlow in a voice that made the senior wrangler twitch, even in his swoon. The coconut opened its eyes. It looked as if it had just seen something truly horrific, but this is a normal expression for baby orangutans, and in any case, it was looking at the dean. Eek, it said. Ridcully coughed. <clears throat> well, at least he's the right shape, he said. And, er, uh, you, Mrs Whitlow, <laughs> how do you feel? Ah, uh, uh, said the senior wrangler. Very well indeed, thank you, said Mrs Whitlow. This country agrees with me. I don't know whether it was the swim, but I haven't felt quite so buoyant in years. But I looked around, and there was this dear little ape just sitting there. Ponder, would you mind just throwing the senior wrangler in the sea for a moment, said Ridcully. Nowhere too deep. Don't worry if it steams. He took Mrs Whitlow's spare hand. I don't want to worry you, dear Mrs Whitlow, he said, but I think something is shortly going to come as mm, a bit of a shock to you. First of all, and please don't misunderstand me, it might be a good idea to loosen your clothing, he swallowed. <clears throat> Slightly. The bursar had experienced some changes of age as he wandered through the wet but barren land, but to a man capable of being a vase of flowers for an entire afternoon, this was barely a mild distraction. What had caught his eye was a fire. It was burning bits of driftwood, and the flames were edged with blue from the salt. Close to it was a sack made of some sort of animal skins. The damp earth beside the bursar stirred, and a tree erupted, growing so fast that the rain steamed off the unfolding leaves. This did not surprise him. Few things did, Besides, he'd never seen a tree growing before, so he did not know how fast it was supposed to go. Then several more trees exploded around him. One grew so fast that it went all the way from sapling to half-rotten trunk in a few seconds. And it seemed to the bursar that there were other people here. He couldn't see them or hear them, but something in his bones sensed them. However, the bursar was also quite accustomed to the presence of people who couldn't be seen or heard by anyone else, and had spent many a pleasant hour in conversation with historical figures, and sometimes the wall. All in all, the bursar was, depending on your outlook, the most or least suitable person to encounter deity on a first-hand basis. An old man walked around a rock and was halfway to the fire before he noticed the wizard. Like Rincewind, the bursar had no room in his head for racism. As a skin colour, black came as quite a relief compared to some of the colours he'd seen, although he'd never seen anyone quite so black as the man now staring at him.
At least the bursar assumed he was staring. The eyes were so deep-set that he couldn't be sure. The bursar, who had been properly brought up, said, "'Hooray! There's a rosebush!' The old man gave him a rather puzzled nod. He walked over to the dead tree and pulled off a branch, which he pushed into the fire. Then he sat down and watched it, as though watching wood char was the most engrossing thing in the world. The bursar sat down on a rock and waited. If the game was patience, then two could play at it. The old man kept glancing up at him. The bursar kept smiling. Once or twice he gave the man a little wave. Finally, the burning branch was pulled out of the fire. The old man picked up the leather sack in his other hand and walked off among the rocks. The bursar followed him. There was an overhang here under a small cliff, shielding a stretch of vertical rock from the rain. It was the kind of tempting surface that would, in Ankh-Morpork, have already been covered so thickly with so many posters, signs and graffiti that if you'd removed the wall, the general accretion would still have stood up. Someone had drawn a tree. It was the simplest drawing of a tree the bursar had ever seen since he'd been old enough to read books that weren't mainly pictures. But it was also in some strange way the most accurate. It was simple because something complex had been rolled up small as if someone had drawn trees and started with the normal green cloud on a stick and refined it and refined it some more and looked for the little twists in a line that said tree and refined those until there was just one line that said tree. And now when you looked at it, you could hear the wind in the branches. The old man reached down beside him and took up a flat stone with some white paste on it. He drew another line on the rock slightly like a flattened V, and smeared it with mud. The bursar burst out laughing as the wings emerged from the painting and whirred past him. And again he was aware of a strange effect in the air. It reminded him of, yes, old Rubber Hauser. That was his name, dead now, of course, but remembered by many of his contemporaries as the inventor of the graphical device. The bursar had joined the university when likely wizards started their training early, somewhere after the point where they learned to walk, but before they started to push over girls in the playground. The writing of lines in detention class was a familiar punishment, and the bursar, like everyone else, toyed with the usual practice of tying several pens to a ruler in a group attempt to write lines in threes. But Hauser, a reflective sort of boy, had scrounged some bits of wood and stripped a mattress of its springs and devised the four... 16, and eventually the 32-line writing machine. It had got so popular that boys were actually breaking rules in order to have a go on it. At threepence a time to use it, and a penny to help wind it up. Of course, more time was spent setting it up than was ever saved by using it, but this is the case in many similar fields, and is a sign of progress. The experiments tragically came to an end when someone opened a door at the wrong moment and the entire pent-up force of Hauser's experimental prototype 256-line machine propelled him backwards out of a fourth-floor window. Except for the absence of screams, the hand tracing its infinitely simple lines on the rock brought back memories of Hauser. There was a sense of something small being done that was making something happen that was huge. He sat and watched. It was, he remembered later, whenever he was in a state to remember anything, one of the happiest times of his life. When Rincewind lifted his head, a watchman's helmet was spinning gently on the ground. 
To his amazement, the men themselves were still there, although they were lying around in various attitudes of unconsciousness, or at least, if they had sense, feigned unconsciousness. The luggage had a cat's tendency to lose interest in things that didn't fight back, even after you'd kicked them a few times. Shoes littered the ground, too. The luggage was limping around in a circle. Rincewind sighed and stood up. Take the shoes off, they don't suit you, he said. The luggage stood still for a moment, and then the rest of the shoes clattered against the wall. And the dress. What would those nice ladies think if they saw you dressing up like this? The luggage shrugged off the few sequined tatters that remained. Turn around, I want to see your handles. No, I said turn around. Turn around properly, please. Eh, I thought so. I said turn around. Those earrings, they don't do anything for you at all, you know. He leaned closer. Is that a stud? Have you had your lid pierced? The luggage backed away. Its manner indicated very clearly that while it might give in on the shoes, the dress, and even the earrings, the battle over the stud would go to the finish. Well, all right. Now give me my clean underwear. You could make shelves out of the stuff I'm wearing. The luggage opened its lid. Good. Now I... Is that my underwear? Would I be seen dead in something like that? Yes. As a matter of fact, I suspect I would. My underwear, please. It's got my name inside, although I must admit I can't quite remember why I thought that was necessary. The lid shut. The lid opened. Thank you. It was no use wondering how it was done, or for that matter why the laundry returned freshly ironed. The watchman was still very wisely remaining unconscious, but out of habit Rincewind went behind a stack of old boxes to change. He was the sort of person who'd go behind a tree to change if he was on a desert island all alone. You notice something odd about this alley, he said over the top of the boxes. There are no drain pipes. There's no gutters. They've never heard of rain here. I suppose you are the luggage, aren't you? And not some kangaroo in disguise. Why am I asking? Ye gods, these feel good. Right, let's go. The luggage opened its lid again and a young woman looked up at Rincewind. Who are you? Oh, you're the blind man, she said. I beg your pardon? Sorry, Darlene said you must be blind. Well, actually, she said you must be bloody blind. Can you give me a hand out? It dawned on Rincewind that the girl clambering out of the luggage was Neilette, the third member of Letitia's crew, and the one who'd seemed quite plain compared to the others, and certainly a lot less... Well, noisy wasn't quite the word. Probably the word was expansive. They filled the space around them to capacity. Take Darlene a lady he'd last seen holding a man daintily by the collar so that she could punch him in the face. When she walked into a room, there'd be no one in it unaware that she'd done so. Neelette was just ordinary. She brushed some dirt off her dress and sighed. I could see there was going to be another fight, so I hid in Trunky, she said. Trunky, eh, said Rincewind. The luggage had the decency to look embarrassed. Sooner or later, there's always a fight where Darlene goes, said Neilette. You'd be amazed the things she can do with a stiletto heel. I think I've seen one of them, said Rincewind. Don't tell me the others. Um, can I help you? Only me and Trunky here, he gave the luggage a kick, were heading off, weren't we, Trunky? Oh, no, don't kick her. She's been so useful, said Neilette. Really, said Rincewind. 
The luggage turned round slowly so that he couldn't see the expression on its lock. Oh, yeah. I reckon the miners in Kangoolie would have been very unpleasant to Letitia if Trunky hadn't stepped in. Stepped on, I expect. How'd you know that? Oh, the luggage... Uh, Trunky is mine. We got separated. Neelette tried to arrange her hair. It's all right for the others, she said. They just have to change wigs. Beer might be a good shampoo, but not when it's still in the tinny, she sighed. Oh, well, I suppose I'll have to find a way home now. Where do you live? Warralora Surfer. It's Rimwoods, she sighed again. Back to life in the banana bending factory. So much for show business. Then she burst into tears and sat down heavily on the luggage. Rincewind didn't know whether he should go into the pat-pat, there-there routine. If she was like Darlene, he might lose an arm. He made what he hoped was a soothing yet non-aggressive mumble. I mean, I know I can't sing very well, and I can't dance, but frankly neither can Letitia and Darlene. When Darlene sings Prancing Queen, you could slice bread with it. Not that they've been unkind, she added quickly, polite even in the throes of woe. But really, there's got to be more to life than getting beer thrown at you every night and being chased out of town. Rincewind felt confident enough to venture a there-there. He didn't risk a pat-pat. Really, I only did it because of Noeline dropping out, Neelette sobbed. And I'm about the same height, and Letitia couldn't find anyone else in time, and I needed the money, and she said it would be OK, provided people didn't notice my hands were so small. Noeline being my brother. I told him trying for the surf championship is fine and ball gowns are fine, but both together, I don't think so. Did you know what a nasty rash you can get from being rolled across coral? And next morning, Letitia had this tour organised and, well, it seemed a good idea at the time. Noeline, Rincewind mused. That's an unusual name for, um... Darlene said you wouldn't understand. Neelat stared into the middle distance. I think my brother worked in the factory too long, she mused. He was always very impressionable. Anyway, ah, oh, oh, I get it. He's a female impersonator, said Rincewind. Oh, I know about those. Old pantomime tradition. Couple of balloons, a straw wig and a few grubby jokes. Why, when I was a student at Hogswatch parties, old Farter Carter and really pants would put on a turn where... He was aware that she was giving him one of those long, slow looks. Tell me, she said, do you get about much? You'd be amazed, said Rincewind. And you meet all kinds of people? Generally the nastier kind, I have to admit. Well, some men... Neelette stopped. Really, Pants? That was someone's name? Not exactly. He was called Ronald Pants. So, of course, when anyone heard that, they said... Oh, is that all? said Neelette. She stood up and blew her nose. I told the others I'd leave when we got to the galah, so they'll understand. Being a female impersonator is no job for a woman, which is what I am, incidentally. I hoped it was obvious, but in your case, I thought I'd better mention it. Can you get us out of here, Trunky? The luggage wandered over to the wall at the end of the alley and kicked it until there was a decent-sized hole. On the way back, it clogged a watchman who was unwise enough to stir. Um, I call him... The luggage, said Rincewind, helplessly. Really? We call her Trunky. The wall opened up into a dark room. 
Crates were packed against the walls, covered with cobwebs. Oh, we're in the old brewery, said Neelat. Well, the new one, really. Let's find a door. Good idea, said Rincewind, eyeing the spiderwebs. New brewery? Looks pretty old to me. Neelat rattled a door. Locked, she said. Come on, we'll find another one. Look, it's the new brewery because we built it to replace the one over the river. But it never worked. The beer went flat or something. They all said it was haunted. Everyone knows that, don't they? We went back to the old brewery. A dad lost nearly all his money. Why? He owned it. Just about broke his heart, that did. He left it to me. She tried another door. Because, well, he never got on with no lean. What with the, uh, well, you know, or rather, obviously you don't. But it ruined the business, really. And rue beer used to be the best there was. Can't you sell it? The site, I mean. Here? A place where beer goes flat within five seconds? Can't give it away. Rincewind peered up at the big metal vats. Perhaps it was built on some old religious site, he said. That sort of thing can happen, you know. Back home there was this fish restaurant that got built on a... Neelette rattled another unbudging door. That's what everyone thought, she said. But apparently, Dad asked all the local tribes and they said it wasn't. They said it wasn't any kind of sacred site. They said it was an unsacred site. Some chief went to prison to see the Prime Minister and said, Mate, your mob can dig it all up and drop it over the edge of the world. No worries. Why did he have to go to prison? We put all our politicians in prison as soon as they're elected, don't you? Why? Saves time. She tried an unrelenting handle. Damn, and the windows are too high. The ground trembled. Metal jangled somewhere in the darkness. Dust moved in strange little waves across the floor. Oh, not again, said Neelette. Now not only the dust moved. Tiny shapes scuttled across it, flowed around Rincewind's feet and sped under the locked door. The spiders are leaving, said Neelette. Fine by me, said Rincewind. This time the tremor made the wall creak. It's never been this bad, Neelette muttered. Find a ladder, we'll give the windows a go. Above them, a ladder parted company from the wall and folded itself into a metal puzzle on the floor. This may not seem a good time to ask, said Rincewind, but are you a kangaroo by any chance? Far above them, metal creaked and went on creaking in a long-drawn wail of inorganic pain. Rincewind looked up and saw the dome of the brewery gently dissolve into a hundred falling pieces of glass. And dropping through the middle of it, some of its lamps still burning, the grinning shape of the rue beer kangaroo. Trunky, open up, Neelette yelled. No, Rincewind began, but she grabbed him and dragged him, and in front of him was an opening lid. The world went dark. There was wood underneath him. He tapped it very carefully. And wood in front of him. And wood... Excuse me. We're inside the luggage. Why not? That's how we got out of Kangoolie last week. You know, I think it may be a magic box. Do you know some of the things that have been inside it? Letitia kept her gin in it. I know that. Rincewind felt upwards gingerly. Maybe the luggage had more than one inside. He'd suspected as much. Maybe it was like one of those conjurer's boxes where after you'd put a penny in, the drawer miraculously slid around and it had gone. Rincewind had been given one of those as a toy when he was a kid. He'd lost almost two dollars before he gave up and threw the thing away. 
His fingers touched what might have been a lid, and he pushed upwards. They were still in the brewery. This came as some relief, considering where you might end up if you got into the luggage. There was still the bowel-disturbing rumble, punctuated by clangs and tinkles, as bits of rusted metal crashed down with lethal intent. The big kangaroo sign was well alight. In the smoke that rose from it were some pointy hats. That is, the curls swirling and billowing around the holes in the air looked very much like the three-dimensional silhouettes of a group of wizards. Rincewind stepped out of the luggage. Oh, no, 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 he mumbled. I only got here a couple of months ago. It's not my fault. They look like ghosts, said Neelad. Do you know them? No, but they're all mixed up with these earthquakes and something called the wet, whatever that was. That's just some old story, isn't it? Anyway, Mr Wizard, it might have escaped your notice that the place is filling up with smoke. Which way did we come in? Rincewind looked around desperately. Smoke obscured everything. Has this place got cellars, he said. Yeah, I used to play mothers and mothers with no lean in them when we were kids. Look for hatches in the floor. And it was three minutes later that the ancient wooden hatch cover in the alley finally gave way under the luggage's insistent pounding. Several rats poured out, followed by Rincewind and Neelette. No one paid them any attention. A column of smoke was rising over the city. Watchmen and citizens were already forming a bucket chain, and men with a battering ram were trying to break open the brewery's main doors. We were well out of that, Rincewind observed. Oh, boy, yes. Hey, what's going on? Where's the bloody water gone? The cry came from a man working the handle of a pump out on the street, just as the pump gave a groan and the handle went limp. A watchman grabbed his arm. There's another one in the yard over there. Get a wiggle on, mate. A couple of men tried the other pump. It made a choking noise, spat out a few drops of water and some damp rust and gave up. Rincewind swallowed. I think the water's gone, he said flatly. What do you mean, gone? said Neelette. There's always water. Huge great seas of it underground. Yes, but it doesn't get filled up much, does it? It doesn't rain here. There you go again, she stopped. What's it you know? You're looking shifty, Mr Wizard. Rincewind stared glumly up at the Tower of Smoke. There were twirling, tumbling sparks in it, rising in the heat and showering down over the city. Everything will be bone dry, he thought. It doesn't rain here. It... hang on. How do you know I'm a wizard, he said. It's written on your hat, she said. Badly. You know what a wizard is? This is a serious question. I'm not pushing a prawn. Everyone knows what a wizard is. We've got a university full of the useless mongrels. And you can show me where this is, can you? Find it yourself. She tried to stride off through the milling crowd. He ran after her. Please don't go. I, I, I need someone like you as an interpreter. What do you mean? We speak the same language. Really? Stubbies here are really short shorts or small beer bottles. How often do newcomers confuse the two? Neelette actually smiled. Not more than once. Just take me to this university of yours, will you? said Rincewind. I think I can feel a famous last stand coming on. There was a brief scream of metal overhead and a windmill fan crashed down into the street. And we'd better be quick, he added. Otherwise, all the beer to drink is beer. The bursar laughed again 
as a series of little charcoal dots extended their legs, formed up and marched down the stone and across the sand in front of him. Behind him the trees were already loud with birdsong. And then, sadly, with wizards as well. He could hear the voices in the distance, and while wizards are always questioning the universe, they mainly direct the questions at other wizards and don't bother to listen to the answers. Certainly saw no trees when we arrived. Probably we didn't see them because of the rain, and the senior wrangler didn't see them because of Mrs Whitlow. And get a grip on yourself, will you, Dean? I'm sure you're getting young again. No one's impressed. I think I must be just naturally youthful, Arch-Chancellor. Nothing to be proud of there, and please someone stop the senior wrangler getting a grip on himself. Oh, looks like someone's had a picnic. The painter seemed engrossed in his work and paid them no attention at all. I'm sure the bursa went this way. A little red mud coloured a complex curve, and there, as if it had always been there, was a creature with the body of a giant rabbit, the expression of a camel, and a tail that a lizard would be proud of. The wizards appeared round the rock just in time to see it scratch its ears. Ye gods, what's that? Some sort of rat, said the chair of indefinite studies. Hey, look, Bursa's found one of the locals. The dean ambled across to the painter, who was watching the wizards with his mouth open. Good morning, fellow. What's that thing called? The painter followed the pointing finger. Kangaroo, he said. The voice was a whisper on the very cusp of hearing, but the ground trembled. Kangaroo, eh? That might not be what it's called, sir, said Ponder. He might just be saying, I don't know. Can't see why not. He looks the sort of chap you find in this sort of place, said the dean. Deep tan, shortage of trousers, the sort of fellow who'd know what the wildlife is called, certainly. He just drew it, said the bursar. Oh, did he? Very good artists, some of these chaps. He's not rinse-wind, is he? said Red Cully, who seldom bothered to remember faces. I know he's a bit on the dark side, but a few months in the sun would bake anyone. The other wizards drew together and looked around for any nearby sign of mobile rectangularity. No hat, said Ponder, and that was that. The dean peered at the rock wall. Quite good drawings for native art, he said. Interesting lines. The bursar nodded. As far as he could see, the drawings were simply alive. They might be coloured earth on rock, but they were as alive as the kangaroo that had just hopped away. The old man was drawing a snake now, one wiggly line. I remember seeing some of those palaces the Tezumen built in the jungle, said the dean, watching him. Not an ounce of mortar in the whole place, and the stones fit together so well you couldn't stick a knife between them. Ah, they were about the only things the Tezumen didn't stick a knife between, he added. Odd people, really. Very big on wholesale human sacrifice and cocoa. Not an obvious combination, to my mind. Kill 50,000 people and then relax with a nice cup of hot chocolate. Excuse me, I used to be quite good at this. To the horror, even of Ridcully, the dean took the piece of frayed twig out of the painter's hand and dabbed it gently on the rock. See? Dot for the eye, said the dean, handing it back. The painter gave him a sort of smile. That is, he showed his teeth. Like many other beings on astral planes of all kinds, he was puzzled by the wizards. They were people with the family-sized self-confidence that seems to be able to get away with anything. They generated an unconscious field which said that, of course, they should be there, but no one was to worry or fuss around tidying up the place on their account and just get on with whatever they were doing. 
the more impressionable victims were left with the feeling that they had clipboards and were awarding marks. Behind the dean, a snake wriggled away. "'Anyone feel anything odd?' said the lecturer in recent rooms. "'My fingers tingled. Did any of you do any magic just then?' The dean picked up a burnt twig. The painter's mouth dropped open as the wizard drew a scratching line on the stone. "'I think you might be offending him,' said Ponder. "'Nonsense! A good artist is always prepared to learn,' said the dean. "'Interesting thing, these fellows never seem to get the idea of perspective.' The bursar thought, or received the thought, that's because perspective is a lie. If I know a pond is round, then why should I draw it oval? I will draw it round because round is true. Why should my brush lie to you just because my eye lies to me? It sounded like quite an angry thought. What's that you're drawing, Dean? said the senior wrangler. What does it look like? A bird, of course. The voice in the bursar's head thought, But a bird must fly. Where are the wings? This one's standing on the ground. You don't see the wings, said the dean, and then looked puzzled at having answered a question no one had asked. Blast! You know it's harder than it looks drawing on a rock. I always see the wings, thought the voice in the bursar's head. The bursar fumbled for his dried frog pill bottle. The voices were never usually this precise. "'Very flat bird,' said Ridcully. "'Come on, Dean, our friend here isn't very happy. "'Let's go and work out a really good boat spell.' "'Looks more like a weasel to me,' said the senior wrangler. "'You got the tail wrong. The stick slipped.' "'A duck is fatter than that,' said the chair of indefinite studies. "'You shouldn't try to show off, Dean. "'When was the last time you saw a duck that didn't have peas round it?' "'Last week, actually.' Yes, we had crispy duck with plum sauce, I now recall. Here, let me have a go. Now you've given it three legs. I did ask for the stick. You snatched it away. Now look, said Ridcully. I'm a man who knows his ducks, and what you've got there is laughable. Give me that. Thank you. You do a beak like this. That's on the wrong end, and it's too big. You think that's a beak? Look. All three of you are barking up the wrong tree. Give me that stick. Ah, but you see, ducks don't bark. Ha! There's no need to snatch like that. Unseen University was built of stone. So built out of stone that in fact there were many places where it was hard to tell where wild rock ended and domesticated stone began. It was hard to imagine what else you could build a university out of. If Rincewind had set out to list possible materials, he wouldn't have included corrugated iron sheets. In response to some sort of wizardly ancestral memory, though, the sheets around the gates had been quite expertly bent and hammered into the shape of a stone arch. Over it, burned into the thin metal, were the words nullus anxietas. I shouldn't be surprised, should I? he said. No worries. The gates, which were also made of corrugated iron, nailed to bits of wood by a man using second-hand nails, were firmly shut. A crowd of people were hammering on them. Looks like a lot of other people have the same idea, said Neilette. There'll be another way in, said Rincewind, walking away. There'll be an alley. Ah, ah, there it is. Now these aren't stone walls, so there won't be removable bricks, which means... He prodded at the tin sheets and one of them wobbled. Ah, yes, a loose sheet which swings aside so you can get back in after hours. How did you know that? This is a university, isn't it? 
Come on. A message had been chalked beside the loose sheet. Nulli Shilai Sanguine. Rincewind read aloud. But your name's not Sheila, so we're probably okay. If it means what I think it means, it means they don't allow women, said Neelad. You should have brought Darlene. Sorry? Forget I mentioned it. Somewhat to Rincewind's surprise, there was a short, pleasant lawn on the other side of the fence, illuminated by the light from a large, low building. All the buildings were low, but had big, wide roofs, giving the effect you might get if someone stepped on a lot of square mushrooms. If they'd been painted, it had been an historical event, probably coming somewhere between fire and the invention of the wheel. There was a tower. It was about twenty feet high. I don't call this much of a university, said Rincewind. He allowed himself a touch of smugness. Twenty feet high? I could pit, I could spit from the top of it. Oh, well. He made for the doorway, just as the light grew a lot brighter and was tinted with octarine, the eighth colour that was intimately associated with magic. The doors themselves were shut fast. He banged on them, making them rattle. Fraternal greetings, brothers, he shouted. I bring you good grief. The world simply changed. One moment he was standing in front of a rusting door, and the next he was in a circle with half a dozen wizards watching him. He caught his balance. Well, full marks for effort, he managed. Where I come from, and you can call me Mr Boring if you like, we just open the door. Stone the crows, but we're getting good at this, said a wizard. And they were wizards. Rincewind was in no doubt of it. They had proper pointy hats, although the brims were larger than anything he'd seen without flying buttresses. Their robes weren't much more than waist length, and below them they wore shorts, long grey socks and big leather sandals. A lot of this was not the typical wizarding outfit as he'd grown up to understand it, but they were still wizards. They had that unmistakable hot-air balloon about-to-take-off look. The apparent leader of the group nodded at Rincewind. "'Good evening, Mr Boring.' I must say you got here a lot quicker than we expected. Rincewind felt intuitively that saying I was just outside the door was not a good idea. Um, I had an assisted passage, he said. Eh, he doesn't look very demonic, said a wizard. Remember that last one we called up? Six eyes and three... The really good ones can disguise themselves, Dean. Then this one must be a bloody genius, Arch-Chancellor. Thank you very much, said Rincewind. The Arch-Chancellor nodded at him. He was, of course, elderly, with a face that looked as though it had been screwed up and then smoothed out, and a short, graying beard. There was something oddly familiar that Rincewind couldn't quite place. We've called you up, boring, said the man, because we want to know what's happened to the water. It's all gone, is it? said Rincewind. Thought so. It can't go, said the Dean. It's water. There's always water if you go down deep enough. But if we go any deeper, we're going to give an elephant a bloody nasty shock, said the Arch-Chancellor. So we... There was a clang as the doors hit the floor. The wizards backed away. What the hell's that? said one of them. Oh, that's my luggage, said Rincewind. It's made out of... Uh, not the box on legs. <gasps> Isn't that a woman? Don't ask him, he's not very quick at that sort of thing, said Neelat, stepping in behind the luggage. Sorry, but Trunky got impatient. We can't have women in the university, shouted the dean. They'll want to drink sherry. 
No worries, said the Arch-Chancellor, waving a hand irritably. What's happened to the water? Boring? It's all been used up, I suppose, said Rincewind. So how can we get some more? Why does everyone ask me? Don't you have some rain-making spells or something? There's that word again, said the Dean. Water sprinkling out of the sky, eh? I'll believe that when I see it. We tried making one of those. What were they called? Big white bags of water, the things some of the sailors say they see in the sky. Clouds. Right, they don't stay up, boring. We threw one off the tower last week and it hit the Dean. I've never believed those old stories, said the Dean, and I reckon you mongrels waited until I was walking past. You don't have to make them. They just happen, said Rincewind. Look, I don't know how to make it rain. I thought any halfway decent wizard knew how to do a rain-making spell, he added, as someone who wouldn't know where to start. Really? said the Arch-Chancellor with dangerous brightness. No offence meant, said Rincewind hurriedly. I'm sure this is a very good university considering. Obviously it's not a real one, but it's amazingly good in the circumstances. What's wrong with it? said the Arch-Chancellor. Well, your tower's a little bit on the small side, isn't it? I mean, even compared to the buildings around here. Not that there's... I think we ought to show Mr Boring our tower, said the Arch-Chancellor. I don't think he's taking us seriously. I've seen it, said Rincewind. From the top? No, obviously not from the top. We haven't got time for this, Arch-Chancellor, said a small wizard. Let's send this wazza back to hell and find something better. Excuse me? said Rincewind. By hell, do you mean some hot red place? Yes. Really? How do Axians know when they've got there? The beer's warmer? No more arguing. This one turned up very fast when we did the summoning, so this is the one we need, said the Arch-Chancellor. Come along, Boring. This won't take a minute. Ponder shook his head and wandered over to the fire. Mrs Whitlow was sitting demurely on a rock. In front of her, getting as close to the fire as possible, was the librarian. He was still extremely small. Maybe his temporal gland had to take longer to work itself out, Ponder thought. "'What are the gentlemen doing?' said Mrs Whitlow. She had to raise her voice above the argument, but Mrs Whitlow would still have said, "'Is there some difficulty if she saw the wizards out on the lawn "'throwing fireballs at the monsters from the dungeon dimensions?' She likes to be told these things. They found a man drawing the most alive-looking pictures I've ever seen, said Ponder. So now they're trying to teach him art. By committee. The gentlemen always take an interest, said Mrs Whitlow. They always interfere, said Ponder. I don't know what it is about wizards. They can't just watch. So far they're arguing about how to draw a duck, and frankly I don't think a duck has four legs, which is what it's got so far. Honestly, Mrs Whitlow, they like kittens in a feather-plucking shed. What's that? The librarian had tipped up the leather bag lying by the fire and was testing the contents for taste in the way of young mammals everywhere. He picked up a flat, bent piece of wood, painted in lines of many colours, far more pigments than the old man had been using to paint, and Ponder wondered why. He tested it for palatability, banged it on the ground in a vaguely hopeful way, and threw it away. Then he pulled out a flat oval of wood on a piece of string and tried chewing the string. "'Is that a yo-yo?' said Mrs Whitlow. We used to call them bull roarers when I was a kid, said Ponder. You whirl it around over your head to make a funny noise. He waved his hand vaguely in the air. Eek! Who 
isn't that sweet. He's trying to do what you do.